I took a pretty careful count. I wanted to see how we would do on the holiday weekend. 60%. That means 40% hit the road, went somewhere else. Which means 60% sheep, 40% goats. I didn't know that God would do that in terms of the percentages, but that's what it looks like. So I'm kind of surprised. There was, uh, this week, a Time cover story that you may have seen on the millennial generation or on Generation Y. Anybody who is born 1980 or after is Generation Y. And it doesn't mean generation like Y, but it's just not Generation X. And so the next letter after X is Y. We're going to get to gener Generation Z one of these days, and then what are they going to do? Generation AA? Pretty soon everybody will ba be a battery or something? I don't know. Um, I don't know what's going to happen with all that. But here's what the article basically said. It says that this generation, as opposed to my generation, like I'm a baby boomer, okay? The baby boomers were called the me generation. And if you know anything about the 60s, if you grew up in the 60s at all and then moving into the 70s, that's pretty much true, okay? It was the me generation. What this Time article says, a guy named Joel Stein wrote this article, he calls Generation Y, or the millennials, the me, me, me generation, which I think means three times as self-focused as those who were baby boomers. So I'm one less, or one third less, two thirds less, self-focused than Generation Y, okay? Well, he goes on to say in the article that a large percentage of the youngest generation is for all intents and purposes narcissistic, which if you don't know that story, narcissist, it's a Greek story where a narcissist eventually goes and he looks into a pool of water. He bends over and he sees his own reflection in the pool and immediately falls in love with his own reflection. That's what this generation is doing, apparently. Well, I think that's an interesting kind of comment. Here's one of the things that he says. He says the incidence of narcissistic personality disorder is nearly three times as high for people in their 20s as for the generation that's now 65 or older, according to the National Institutes of Health. 58% more college students scored higher on a narcissism scale in 2009 than in 1982. In 1982, by the way, is getting right at the end of the baby boomer generation in terms of graduates from university. I graduated in 1980. And so, and I was born in 58, I think they take the, normally take the baby boomer generation up through 64, if I remember right. So the baby boomers are right at the end there, and they tend to be 58%, it says, more, more narcissistic than those who are from my generation. And I don't know how they measure such things. But it's an interesting comment, anyway. Stein also says, go, goes on and talks about a number of other things, and then he gets a response from... Elspeth Reeves, who wrote in some other magazine, I can't remember. Basically, it's not that people born after 1980 are narcissists. So she's disputing Stein. 
It's that young people are narcissists and they get over themselves as they get older. It's like doing a study of toddlers and declaring those born since 2010 are generation sociopath. Because they will throw full bowls of cereal without even thinking of the consequences. When you think about that, that makes some sense. And I do think it's the case that as people get older, that they do mellow out and maybe have less of a concern for him or herself as they get older. And they start to realize that life just doesn't work that way. Well, Stein at least acknowledges this. He says, millennials' self-involvement is more a continuation of a trend than a revolutionary break from previous generations. They're not a new species. They've just mutated to adapt to their environment. Which is interesting. The point being that it is true that all generations are in some sense narcissistic, that we're all self-centered, but that as time goes on, people are becoming even more so. He would say mutating or evolving into more and more narcissistic creatures, but that's not to say that we haven't always been that way. And I'm guessing if you went back to Adam and Eve, you would find them in some sense narcissistic, concerned about themselves. That's the human condition. We've always kind of been like that. Well, that got me to thinking this week, not so much about our self-centeredness as much as what we should do to get beyond our self-centeredness. Like, is that where we are? Me, me, me. And if that's the case, what are we going to do about that? But I'm convinced that that's a difficult task for all of us. And I would say that especially as time goes by and in this generation, it becomes more and more difficult. And in fact, in one sense, almost impossible because there are some things that we have to be thinking about. In fact, there are some questions that we have to be considering if we're going to get through life at all. Like, is there anyone in here who hasn't in some sense planned for your next step? And wasn't your previous step in some sense planned? What I mean is this, the current job that you have now, Did you just fall into it? That's a possibility. There's certainly people who fall into their jobs. But many people stop and think about what they're going to do next. And so they ask questions about what the next step in life might be. In fact, they ask questions like these as they grow up. And these millennials are going to be asking these kinds of questions. What will they do for their careers? That's a reasonable question. That's not narcissistic. That's just a regular kind of question that anybody should should sensibly ask. Will post-high school education be for them? Where will they attend? So are you going to go to university, post-high school? You're going to college, going to technical school? What are you going to do? Is that for you? Will you go? Where will you attend? If they choose to marry, what kinds of persons will they marry? I'd like to think that you didn't just fall into that one. That the person that you're sitting next to right now, if it happens to be a spouse, it's somebody that you said to yourself, I have certain ideas about what I want for a marriage partner, and I'm going to get married to the person who fits that image of what I want a married partner to be. As opposed to, there's somebody, I'll marry her. Where will they live is a question they're going to ask. I told you the story before. I told God I will not move to Los Angeles. That's the one place in the world I won't go. Two years later, I'm there. God had different plans. So throw that question out. It doesn't work. 
No, of course we need to ask that question. Where are you going to live? Are you going to go home? Are you going to go off to university 3,000 miles away and then go home? Will you go where work is? Where you go where your spouse's work is? Where you go where your spouse is from? Those kind of questions we always ask them. What kind of citizens of the world will they be? Like, for example, is morality important? Is wealth important? Is beauty important? Is appearance important? Is preserving the environment something that you're concerned about? What kind of foods are you going to eat? What kind of car will you drive? What role will media and technology have in your life? Will exercise be important for you? What recreational activities will you enjoy? How important will neighbors and community be to you? These are all the kinds of questions that we ask on a regular basis. Any of you start a diet recently? Let's say in the last five months. Just about the time that the year turned over. If you did or didn't, why did you or not? And what choices went along with that? When a person starts a diet, all of a sudden they say, I'm going to start eating more healthily. I'm going to exercise. I'm going to get more sleep than I usually do. I'm going to drink less. Like we make these kind or drink water more. We make these kinds of decisions, right? And these are purposeful kinds of decisions. When we ask, what kind of person am I going to be? Am I going to be conservative or am I going to be a liberal? Most people don't just fall into that. You think about how am I going to make a choice here? Who will I support? Is money a huge concern for me? Do I want a job because it's going to make me all the money in the world? Or do I make a job because it's going to be fulfilling? These are the kinds of choices we have to make. There are other questions. Again, what political choices will we make? Who will be their friends? What will be their defining parenting style as they grow and eventually have children? I'd like to think that somebody asks that question as opposed to just falling into that. I start raising children. How did you do it? By happenstance. Every decision, we flipped a coin. Is my kid going to be whatever? Flip a coin. Oh, not going to go to school today. That would not be the way to make the decisions about how you're going to parent. Well, were there, where will their children go to school? Um, Robin and I have always made a decision. Well, say we've always made. We did always make. It's all past tense for us now. But we always made decisions about Christian schools. We decided we would put our kids in Christian schools as opposed to homeschooling or public school or whatever. And at least I think a parent needs to make a responsible, thoughtful decision. Again, and not just fall into that. In what will their children be involved? Athletics? Music? Drama? What social activities? What will you let them do and be? How will they spend their free time and their money. These are all questions that people eventually have to ask. And every one of you has probably made some kind of decision about every one of those questions. If you've had children and if you've got married. And, but then, you know, if they apply it all to you, you've had to make these kinds of decisions. Well, it's not simply self-centeredness, I don't think, that causes people to ask these kinds of questions. They ask them because... They're good. There was a, a TV show back in the 1950s that some of you would remember. I'm sure it aired in Canada as well. Davy Crockett. Son of the Wild Frontier. Do you remember that, John? Can you sing the song? In your head? 
thank you. Um, I can sing the song. It went, Davy, Davy Crockett, king of the wild frontier. I said, son, but Joe's correcting me. Joe said king of the wild frontier because he knows. He's a boomer probably. <laughs> no, I don't know. <laughs> okay. King of the wild frontier. Here's a quote from Davy Crockett. I remember this. And part of the reason I remember it is because my dad used to use this all the time. My dad had some problems. He didn't have the strongest moral ethic in the world. He wasn't always making the best decisions, but he said a couple of things that really stuck with me. And this one was from Davy Crockett. The, the quote was, <laughs> you can tell how well it stuck with me. Make sure you're right and then go ahead. That was the quote. And there's a sense in which that was my moral compass when I was growing up. Now, what's interesting about that is that it is totally, in one sense, self-centered. Make sure you are right. But there's no definition there about what rightness is. It doesn't say, make sure you're right and in accordance with the word of God, and then go ahead. There's nothing like that. It was just, make sure you're right, and then go ahead. There were other things that my father told me that were not near as wise as that one. I can remember the advice that my father gave me about girls. I actually can't repeat it here. And it was terribly unwise advice. Because there was no moral compass to guide those kinds of decisions. So Davy Crockett would be a source. The humanist would be a source. The question is, what is best for humanity? But again, best is totally undefined in some question, a humanist kind of question. What if the human beings aren't the epitome of the world? Then that question no longer works. What if there are others out there, in fact? That's kind of the question the Star Trek ask as they go into the vast unknown, seeking out new life and new civilizations, boldly going where no man had gone before. They ask the question so often, what is best for the universe? Because you can no longer ask the question, what is best for humanity? And then eventually we Christians got to the point where we asked the question, and I can just say it like this, WWJD. What's that? What would Jesus do? Ask a long time ago, by the way, a guy named Charles Sheldon wrote a book. And the point of the book was simply that. That, that would be our guide. Well, that's kind of where I want to go this morning. And what I want to do this morning is to just ask four basic questions in thinking about the future. And I think that these are really important. In fact, I think these are so important that I'm going to say, take out a piece of paper from the pew back in front of you and a pen and get ready to write these down. And the reason why is because I think these are crucial. I think these are biblical. I think God can use these in your life. And if you're a parent thinking, how am I going to make decisions? If you're a young person, especially, if you are one of these millennial wise, if you're a, a Gen Y, a millennial asking questions about life. Okay. So Brenna, I expect you to get a pen and a piece of paper. Stephanie, Where's your piece of paper and a pen? Michael? Oh, yeah. Put it on your phones. Yes. See, there you go. 
Like, and I'm, I'm just a baby boomer. I'm thinking pen and paper. You know, a few generations before me, I would have said, get out your quills. Okay? But take out your phones, if that's what you do. And here's some advice to take home with you today that I think is going to be a blessing if you just allow this to take root in your life. The first question you need to ask is, how will your choices bring glory to God? How will your choices bring glory to God? Let me just read this this quote from Revelation chapter 14, verse 7. And here's the setting for this. There's this apocalyptic, beautiful view of what things are going to be like at the end. And there's 144,000 saints standing before the Lamb. And they are washed in the blood of the Lamb. They are white as snow as the Lamb. And as time goes through the text here, you're just getting a picture of what things are going to be like at the end. And here's what the text says. In a loud voice, fear God and give him glory. Because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. And this is an ultimate kind of statement. This is a statement looking toward the end and asking the question, where should all things consummate? And the fact is, in our lives, things should consummate here. Where we end up with the loud voice of all of those who stand before God saying... We give glory to God. And you need to ask that of every decision that you make. And so if you are thinking, where am I going to go to university? If you're thinking, who am I going to marry? If you're thinking, how am I going to raise my kids? What am I going to let them do when they grow up or as they grow up? Ask that question, how is it that we can bring glory to God in the process? The second question, how will your choices impact what God wants to see happen in the world? I won't ask you to turn there, but if you were to turn to Acts chapter 1, verse 3, which, as you can imagine, just think about this now, Acts chapter 1, verse 3, how close to the beginning of the book of Acts does that come? Really close, eh? Acts chapter 1, verse 3, really close to the beginning. Well, that verse talks about how Jesus, when he was alive on the earth for the 40 days after his resurrection, talked to the disciples specifically about the kingdom. That's what it says. And he talked to them, he spoke to them about the kingdom. And the book ends, Acts chapter 28, verse 30, the very last verse in the book of Acts, talks about how Paul is in the city of Rome and he keeps talking to everyone about the kingdom. And there's a direct connection between the kingdom and what God wants to see happen in the world. In fact, Jesus, how many of you can quote, I'm sure most of you can quote the Lord's Prayer, right? You probably can quote, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy thy kingdom come. Christ prayed specifically that his kingdom would come and take up residence here. That's what he wants. He wants to establish his kingdom for his kingdom to come in all its fullness, all its reality. And that's what he was talking to the disciples about in chapter 1, verse 3 of Acts, right at the beginning of the book. And that's how the book ends. And the fact is is that everything in between is about the kingdom and about what God wants to do in our world. And we need to ask the question about how do my choices impact what God is trying to do in the world? How does it impact his kingdom? Third question, how will your choices impact what God wants to see happen in your life? 
Matthew chapter 7, verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Matthew 6, 19. Do not seek to build treasures here on earth, but place your treasures in heaven. And it's not that we're placing our treasures in some far off place where we're just hoping we'll have gold somewhere else someday. The point is is that we're thinking about these heavenly spiritual things. We're focusing our lives, centering our lives on what God wants for us. And so this question, what does God want to see happen in your life? If you're seeking first, seeking first of all things, his kingdom, life ends up where it should go. So if you're ever thinking, boy, what do I, you know, where should I go with life? Seek first his kingdom. And you're going to end up in a lot better place if you do. Last question. How will your choices enable you to best love others? Those two great commands in Matthew 22. Love the Lord your God. And love your neighbor as yourself. And we've already kind of seen the other one and the whole notion of giving glory to God. But this second one just simply asks the question, how can I love others best? And my sense is, is that if you ask these questions, and again, let me talk to the young people really seriously. You have all of life laid out in front of you. What will life be for you? You two guys over here, what is life going to be like for you? Yeah, you don't know. That's right. You don't know. But I'll tell you what, if you take these questions seriously, you're going to end up in a lot better place. And God wants you to do just exactly this. It is so easy for us to focus on ourselves, to see that image in the pool and fall in love. And God wants us instead to be in love with him. And respond in these ways. Life's going to end up better if we do. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you for the privilege and blessing we have of being your children. You have blessed us beyond what we ever deserve. And God, you've given us opportunities here to serve and to love and to glorify you with all our hearts. And God, we know when we do that something wonderful takes place. A a human life is built as you would want it to be built. Father, for the, the young people today especially, I pray clear vision that they can see what they need to be. And they will follow you in doing so, in building their lives. Help them, Father, to walk a path that you want every one of them to walk. For the parents, give them wisdom about how to lead their children down this path. And for those of us, Father, who've, who've kind of been there, keep us there. Help us to walk with you always. It's through Christ that we pray. Amen.